a little, he said, I'm a little weak and a little tired, but uh, he said, I'm doing really good. So they let him come home today because he was doing so well. And uh, so he's home, and um, just keep praying for him. Pray for uh, not just a full recovery, but, man, uh, to have 100% operation out of those knees. And, uh, and pray for Loretta. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, he's going to be down for a good four weeks. You know, he'll have to get up and they start uh, therapy at home tomorrow. So the home therapist is coming out tomorrow to start therapy. So um, it'll be a pretty rigorous um, regiment he's under, but that's good because it'll pay off in the long run. So pray for them. And uh, I think, I think uh, there's a coordinated effort for meals or something. Okay, so uh, Barbara and Shelby, I'll be able to tell you how to get on that schedule. So we're covered next week. And if you get a chance, you know, go by and see him. He'll be there during the day. He can't go anywhere. So, um, or call him and check on him, pray for him. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Open your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And um, <clears throat> we've been in Matthew 16, 18, and 19 uh, for the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> maybe the last three weeks, and we're going to kind of go from here into the next few verses in, what is it, five weeks? Seven, 14, 21, 28, four, in five weeks it'll be Easter, and uh, this is the Lenten season, and here in Matthew um, 16, Verse 18, it's the famous verse where Jesus uh, declares to Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock of revelation. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the revelation that Peter got, the revelation that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes this statement, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've been talking about the gospel and the power of the gospel. And in verse 20, Jesus says, Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So, <clears throat> the revelation has come from heaven, but Jesus said, It's not time yet. Don't tell anyone who I am. And, and the reason for this, basically, is because Jesus had not fulfilled what he came to do yet. He came to die on the cross to atone for our sins, to be resurrected. And he commanded them not to tell who he was because that was not to come until after his resurrection. So we see in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, he says, now it's time to go and tell the world who I am. And so he makes this statement. He commands them not to tell anyone that he is Jesus the Christ. And then verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now, think about this. How did Jesus show his disciples? He showed them in the Word of God. What it's saying is Jesus took the Scriptures. Not, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and the letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They didn't have that. They had the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus took the Old Testament Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, and He began to show them in the Scriptures that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed... And be raised the third day. He showed them those things in the scripture. And he said, I am the one these scriptures speak of. I'm the one that Isaiah 53 speaks of. I'm the one Psalm 22 speaks of. I am the one Genesis 3.15 spoke of. I am the one. And he took them through the scriptures and he showed them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders and the chief priests, and ultimately be killed and raised the third day. 
Verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, for you, I'm sorry, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter says, Jesus, this is not going to happen to you. Far be it from you that this should happen to you. You are, after all, you just told me, your Father in heaven revealed it to me. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're not going to allow the Christ, the Son of the living God, to, to suffer in the things that you're saying. And what was Jesus' response? Boy, thanks, Peter. I was waiting for someone to stand up for me and, and, and get my back. No, he said, he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, now catch the picture here. Who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this, but my Father in heaven has revealed. You just got a revelation that no man has gotten. You got a revelation from my Father. That's right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Peter, in an effort because of his love for, for Jesus, says, we're not going to let this happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus turns right around and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. He tells Peter, you're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What was Peter's problem? He was not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Yet he just received the revelation of who Jesus is. I mean, God gave him the revelation from heaven, yet... Jesus says to him, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Otherwise, you would not forbid me. And that word there in that verse where it says, in verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He forbid him. He forbid Jesus. He said, I forbid you to go to Jerusalem. I forbid this to happen to you. Like Peter was someone that could forbid the Son of God from fulfilling his destiny and his purpose. But that's exactly what that word rebuke means. I forbid you. And Jesus said, Peter, you're, you're like Satan. Satan, I don't even see Peter, I see Satan right now. And you are an offense to me because you are more mindful of the things of men than you are the things of God. And so, you know, this is an important question for us. What are we mindful of, church? Are we more mindful of the things of men? Or are we more mindful of the things of God? That's a question we need to, to ask ourselves. When we think about what Jesus said was going to happen to him. These sound very contrary to what Peter, the revelation Peter just received, it sounds very contrary to what Jesus just told Peter. What did he tell him? I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And Peter just says, man, I, I'm going to bind this thing up right now. I'm not going to allow this to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. And so it seemed very contradictory to Peter that Jesus now... He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah they've all been waiting for. The kingdom that's been promised obviously is, is, is coming. It's here because He is the Messiah. We know that. He's just, he's just acknowledged it. But, but now He's saying that He's going to have to go suffer. He's going to die at the hands of sinful and wicked men. And Peter can't, he can't reason this out. It doesn't register it doesn't reconcile with him and so he says I forbid this and Jesus rebukes him and so oftentimes the things of the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom seem very contrary to what our logical way of thinking would be see the kingdom is not necessarily logical it, it, there didn't seem to be very much logical about Jesus dying, suffering at the hands of wicked men. Except that Jesus took them through the scripture. It's what the scripture proclaimed. But 
irregardless of what the Scripture says, in Peter's mind, it didn't make sense. And so he says, I forbid it. And we're not going to let that happen. And it makes me wonder how many times, church, that we see things, we experience things that seem to be contrary to what it ought to be. And we begin to think and consider the things of men more than we do the things of God. And when that happens, that's when we become contrary to the will of God, to the purposes of God. And we need to be people that are always mindful of the things of God. And how is it that we will discern what is of God and what is of man? The same way Jesus showed them. It was in the word of God. Now, Peter didn't feel as though this should be the way it is. Was P did Peter's feelings deceive him? Yes. Do we go by what we feel or do we go by what this word declares? We go by what this word declares. Does what this word declare always agree with how I feel or how you feel? Does it? No. Do your feelings always line up with what this word declares? I don't know. Maybe yours do, but my, I'm going to tell you what. Mine don't. My feelings do not always line up with what this word declares. So what am I going to do? Am I going to trust my feelings or am I going to trust the word? Now look at this. I mean, let's review this again. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must, not that he wants to, though he did want to, because he wanted to fulfill the will of his Father, that he must. Why must he? Because that is what was purposed. That is what was ordained. That is what God spoke. That is what God recorded. That was the word and the will of Almighty God. And Jesus began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, that he must be killed and he must be raised the third day. Why must he? Because that is what the word of God declared. And what did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I'm telling you what, this word is eternal. It's not dependent upon what we feel, what we think, our interpretation. It is what it is, and we either conform to it or we deceive ourselves into thinking that it's something that it's not. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. One minute, Peter gets a revelation from heaven. He's sitting there listening as Jesus is showing him in the scriptures everything that must be fulfilled. And when Jesus comes out of Jesus' mouth, this is what must happen to me. He says, Lord, I rebuke you. I forbid you from going and suffering those things. Far be it from you, Lord, that you would have to go and do that. And Peter felt as though he had to save Jesus. He felt as though this was the right thing. We cannot allow this to befall the Son of, of God, the Christ, our Messiah. Can't be. Can't do that to him. Jesus said, no, Peter, it must be. And church, what I'm telling you is we've got to become people that value this word so highly that if it bucks everything we feel, I don't care how much we feel, your feelings will deceive you. And you can become a pawn of Satan based on your feelings if your feelings do not submit to this word right here. And so, I'm telling you, I'm stressing this because we're living in a day and a time when it is absolutely critical that the church return to the Word of God. Return to knowing that this is the only way, this is the only light that can direct our path. The Holy Spirit will never speak anything that violates this. We can feel till kingdom come, but if our feelings aren't in line with this Word right here, then we are deceived. And so, here is Peter, and he's just rebuked by the Lord. Are we more mindful of the things of man, or are we more mindful of the things of God? Now, turn back a page, and let's go to the beginning of this chapter. 
Now remember, it says, from that time forward, Jesus began to show them the things he must suffer, ultimately that he would be crucified and raised the third day. Now we go back to the beginning of chapter 16, and we, we see here, and this precipitates everything. So at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus is with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, why did they ask for a sign? Because they, knowing the scriptures, understood that when the Messiah came, and by now they, they had heard all the buzz and they knew exactly who people were saying Jesus was, who people were hoping Jesus might be, and, and they saw the things Jesus was doing, they heard the things Jesus was, was teaching, and they come to him and they said, well, we're going to test him. And basically what they're saying, if you really are the Messiah, give us a sign from heaven, because there were certain signs that the Messiah would perform. And if the Messiah didn't perform these signs, he couldn't be the Messiah. If he didn't open blind eyes, if he didn't open deaf ears, if he didn't heal the lame, if he didn't heal the lepers, if he didn't raise the dead, if he didn't do Isaiah, the prophets wrote all these things. This is why John, when John the Baptist was in prison in Matthew chapter 11, when John sends his disciples to Jesus, and it says in Matthew 11 that the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, John wants to know if you are the one... Or should we look for another? And the answer Jesus gave to John's disciples was, you go tell John that the, the sick are healed, that the poor has the gospel preached to them, that blind eyes are open, that the lame are walking. Go and tell him that you have seen these signs accomplished and also tell him not to be offended because of me. In other words, I'm not coming to get him out of prison. And I am the Messiah, but, but tell him not to be offended because I'm not going to rescue, I'm not going to save his life. That's a hard thing. Jesus had the absolute power to save John the Baptist's life. His John the Baptist was his cousin. Je he had absolute power to save John's life. Jesus knew it and John knew it. And Jesus said, don't get offended Tell John not to be offended because I'm not going to save his life. That's not what he said directly, but that's, that's what I get from it. Because here's John is in prison. It's like, okay, are you the one or are we waiting for another? If you're the one, because here's, here's the question in everybody's mind. If you are the one, Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? And if the kingdom comes quick enough, I'll get delivered from this prison. And I'll, I'll get to be a part of the kingdom coming. Jesus said, it ain't going to happen the way you guys think it's going to go down. Don't get offended because it's not going to happen the way you think it should happen. Don't get offended because things don't go down the way you think they should go down. Don't get offended because your prayers aren't answered the way you think they should be answered. You hear me, church? That, that was a word to John the Baptist, but that's a word for us today. And so we can't get offended because things don't go down the way we think they should. Because our prayers don't get answered the way we think they should. When they... When we, when we think they should, how we think they should, because we're not the ones that determine it. Is he able? Yes, he is able. But he is the sovereign. And this was Peter's problem. Peter's looking at, he's listening to Jesus, and when Jesus gets to the part, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests, and I'm going to be killed, Peter says, whoa, stop right there. Far be it from you, Lord. We're not going to let this happen. I forbid it. Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. Satan, get behind me. You are more mindful of the things of men than you are the things of God. I'm telling you what, church, we have got to become a people that's more mindful of the things of God than the things of men. We're living in a time when the church needs to become mindful of the things of God, not the things of men. We're not called to be man-pleasers. We're called to be God-pleasers. And part of the problem, I believe, with the church is we're all too worried about pleasing man. And we need to be concerned about pleasing God. And so here is these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and they say, okay, if you are the Messiah, give us a sign. And Jesus answered and said to them, when, when it's evening, you say it's fair weather, for the sky's red. In the morning, 
It will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left and departed. Now go back a few pages and go back to Matthew chapter 12. And we'll see that at an earlier time, in a different place, Jesus makes this very same statement again to who? To the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And in Matthew 12, verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes... Now what's happened here is Jesus has healed. He has healed. uh, He's cast out a demon from a a blind and a mute person. And he did this, and and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees accused him of casting this demon out by the power of the devil. Just look real quick while you're there in verse 23 of chapter 12. It says, after Jesus cast out this demon from this... this, uh, This person, it says, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, the multitudes were amazed and the multitudes said, could this be the son of David or could this be the Messiah? And it says in verse 24, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. In other words, this can't, we're not going to allow, we're not going to even entertain the thought that this could be the son of David. We're not going to entertain the thought that this could be the Messiah. We can't deny that he cast the demon out from this young man. But we're going to say, instead of it was God, we're going to say he did it by the power of a demon. They were so opposed to accepting who Jesus truly was, they were willing to to twist and believe any kind of lie they could fabricate. It wasn't just that they decided to make up this lie. They, They truly convince themselves of this. But it doesn't matter. The fact is, they were deceived and they were rejecting him. And so they have this argument about this whole thing. And then we get down to verse 38. It's after this. And Jesus, man, he calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them wicked. He talks about this wicked generation. And then in verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answering him said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, we hear they're having this big theological debate. They're calling each, you know, they're calling Jesus names, and Jesus is just, he's just calling them out. He said, You're wicked, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites. And they said, Okay, well, well, show us a sign. You know, if if you're casting out demons by God and this is really, that's who you are, then show us a sign. And here's his response. And he answered and said to them. Now remember, this is before we get to Matthew. He does it again in Matthew 16. But he goes into a little bit more detail, and this is why I want you to see this. Verse 39. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41. The men, this is real important. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation. Jesus is talking about a specific generation. He's talking about those guys at that time right there. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Okay, let's, uh, let's go over. Do you see what he says? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the day of judgment. They'll rise up in the judgment. When is that? That's a future time. 
when all men are resurrected and stand before the great white throne judgment, when that judgment comes, the men of Nineveh will stand there with that generation, not us. He's not talking about us. He's talking about those scribes and those Pharisees who were right there in his presence, said they will rise up in the judgment with this generation. The men of Nineveh will condemn you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, one who is far less great than, than who is in your midst right now. Let's go to the book of Jonah. Go to Jonah. Because when Jesus said, there's not going to be any sign given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Yes, he was speaking of his resurrection. But he was speaking of, of more than his resurrection. Because what happened? Remember the story of Jonah? You guys remember it? It's a very short little book. But yet it's a very, very interesting little book. Let's just begin in the first chapter of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Emate, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, I'm not going to go, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail here, but just suffice it to say this. Jonah was an Israelite, and the Ninevites, the, they were, it was the city of Syria. It was the Assyrians. That empire had invaded. It was an age-old enemy of Israel. And the Assyrians were a, an extremely wicked people. And they were especially cruel and ruthless. The Ninevites, or the, the Assyrians, were the ones... I believe they were the first ones that actually began to, to crucify people, though it, they didn't do it in the same way that the Romans did. But it was a, it was a real common thing for the, for the Assyrians to just impale their dead foes on, they just impale their bodies on a post and stick it in the ground and leave it there to rot. And they just, they just impale thousands of people and just leave them there. I mean, they were just cruel. Cruel, cruel. They would just torture and, and mercilessly kill. It didn't matter who. And, and this is why Jonah hated them. Because Jonah knew their cruelty and he knew their wickedness. And look, before God said anything else, what does Jonah do? But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In other words, he got on the ship to escape the presence of the Lord. He thought, if I can, if I can get away from God, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. Nineveh's over here. I'm going to go the exact opposite way because I don't want to hear what God has to say. And Jonah tells us later on, the reason he immediately... Before God says anything else, I mean, we don't even know what God's going to do. He just says, go to Nineveh and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. He just says, cry out against it. But Jonah runs immediately, and the reason he did is he tells, he tells God later. He says, the reason I ran from you, God, you know why. Because you're a merciful God. Because you're a loving God. And, and, and I knew that you wanted me to cry out against that city because you wanted to give them a chance to repent, and they don't deserve repentance. They don't deserve a chance. They are so wicked, they deserve to die. And I didn't want to have to go and give them an opportunity to repent. And so he ran, thinking he could, like you can run away from the presence of God. That sounds foolish, doesn't it? But, but yet, people do it every day. Humanity is still running, trying to run from the presence of God, but you can't run, and you can't hide, and you cannot escape. God, you can't do it. And so here Jonah, he gets on this ship, and they start sailing. Now look at verse 4. I love this. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. It wasn't the devil. It was the Lord. God sent a great wind out onto the sea, 
And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was almost to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, little g, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. He wanted to get as far away from God as he could, as if he could. And he laid down and he fell asleep. And the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So basically, the, the, the guy's like, Dude, who are you? What are you doing on this ship? He said, Well, I'm Jonah, I'm a Hebrew. And my God is the God who created heaven, and he created the sea, he created the storm. He, he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the real God, he's the true God. And, and, and this storm has come because of me. Well, and they said, well, what are we going to do? What's the answer? He said, well, you just need to throw me into the ocean. I mean, he didn't have the guts to even jump in himself. He said, you throw me in the ocean. And they were afraid to throw him in the ocean. And they said, no, let's cast lots, let's make sure. So they cast lots, and the lot fell. Look at this. Look in, look in chapter, look in chapter, y'all know where I'm going, huh? Come let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so he's like, man, throw me overboard. And they said, basically they did. And it says, so they picked up Jonah before they picked him up, verse 14, says, Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into... Listen to these Gentiles. These pagans. Listen to the statement of faith. For you, O God... Look what they said. For you, O God, have done as it pleased you. They picked him up. They threw him into the sea. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. I mean, God used that situation and brought those men to repentance and, and, and revealed himself to them. Verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Do we really think we can run from God? You hearing? Are you seeing? I'm showing you how God operates. Remember, Jesus showed them the things that must come to pass. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to show you the dealings of God? Do we really think we can run from God? Do we really think we can escape the plans and the purposes of God, I'm telling you what, church, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. And God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Remember what Jesus said. No sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the well. Even so, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. But it wasn't just that. It was the whole concept of, of why did Jonah end up in the belly of that whale? What was the result of Jonah being in the belly of that whale? Well, it goes on and in, in, verse, in chapter 2, it, it, it has Jonah's prayer. And Jonah, from the belly of the fish, is praying to the Lord. In chapter 2 of Jonah, is, is, is his whole prayer to God, and he repents in the belly of that whale. And look at verse 8, chapter 2. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. How? With the voice of thanksgiving. The Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, Offering up to him continually the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, offering thanks. Jonah says, I will offer to you I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
you see the, the animals are more obedient to God than us human beings are. They're not created in his image, and we are. And look at the rebellion bound up in the heart of man. I mean, God spoke to that whale once to go get Jonah. He spoke to him again to vomit him out on dry land. And not just any dry land. He took him right to the seashore at Nineveh, vomited him right onto the land. And now in chapter 3, now the word of the Lord. Jonah has been vomited. I love that word. It's so graphic. And that's exactly, can you imagine? I mean, here is this great fish that vomits. Not just Jonah, but everything else in there. He vomits Jonah onto the beach. Can you imagine what Jonah would have come out of that whale like? I'm telling you what. And so it says in chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, that's important, too. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about the gospel. See, we don't have to wonder what message we need to preach, what message we need to convey. God's already given us the message. It's called the gospel. He's told us what to preach. He didn't leave it up to us to decide what we're going to preach and what we're going to teach. He has given us the message. It's called the gospel. He told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly, an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So to get from one side of this metropolis to the other side, the scripture says it would take a three-day journey. And Jonah began to enter the city... On the first day's walk. Now, that's interesting. He began to enter. This picture here is not just he went into the gate. This was long before he got to the gate of the city proper. Nineveh, and we know because at the very last of this book, God says there are 120, there's over 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, there's over 120,000 children so small in that city they don't know how to discern their right hand from their left which meant there was probably five or 600,000 people in this city. And, and so he began, he began to enter the city. He came upon, from the time he came on the outskirts, the very farthest reaches of this metropolitan area, long before he got to the gate, when he encountered the first inhabitant of this place called Nineveh, he was to begin preaching his message. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, and here's his message, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That was his message. Now can you imagine for three days, nonstop, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days, in, I mean, that's it. He just walked and he walked. And he walked, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the scripture says in verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. Did you get that? They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. When we preach the message that God tells us to preach, who cares whether they believe us or not? They need to believe God. This wasn't about Jonah's credibility. This was about God. And when Jonah went in obedience and preached the message that Jonah was given by God, the people, it says, believed God. They believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least of them, to the richest, most powerful, to the, to the scourge of society, they put on sackcloth and ashes. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast 
Herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works. Do you see that? Where did their works come from? Look what does it say in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They put their trust, they put their faith in God. And as a result of their faith, what came forth? God saw their works. It wasn't just lip service. They believed God, but because they believed God, they actually repented. They actually turned from their wicked way. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, I'm going to stop there. We could go on. It displeased Jonah. And then God has to go and, and deal with Jonah. But I want you to see, this is the sign of the prophet Jonah. It wasn't just three days in the belly of the whale. It wasn't just the Son of God three days in the earth. There was a purpose of Jonah being in that belly of that whale, and it was so that he could preach a message of repentance. Jesus didn't just go to that cross and, and spend three days in the, in the earth, in that tomb, so he could just go to heaven. He did it so that we could preach a message of repentance, so that we could proclaim the gospel, so that we could proclaim the message that God has given us so that men would repent and turn from their evil ways and God would relent from the destruction that they deserve. And all who respond to the gospel in faith, guess what? They are spared the destruction they rightly deserve. It wasn't that Nineveh deserved to be saved. They didn't. Jonah was right. There wasn't anything about them that deserved the mercy of God. But what Jonah failed to realize, there wasn't anything about him that deserved to be spare him the mercy of uh, the, the judgment of God either. Interestingly enough, Nineveh was eventually destroyed, but it was 150 years after Jonah preached and they repented. Now you think about 150 years. 150 years would mean that it was highly, and I believe, I don't know for sure, but I, my belief is 150 years later, there was not one person alive when Jonah preached. And, and that repentance was, I don't believe any of the people that repented in Jonah's day were alive when that city fell 150 years later. I believe the judgment of God was, was, was in his mercy, he for, what am I saying? He, he, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, that, that won't work. He postponed the judgment. 150 years, so that none of these people would have to suffer that judgment. Why? Because they had repented. And he said, I will not. They, they were spared the judgment that was rightly due that city. And so this is the sign. This is the sign that Jesus said, what was the point? Why did Jesus say to them, in the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh, will rise up and condemn this generation because they repented. It didn't even take them 40 days. I mean, you read the rest of Jonah. Jonah sits on a hill overlooking the city waiting to see what's going to happen. He said, I'm, I'm going to hang out here until the 40 days is up because I want to see. I'm, I'm hoping God really doesn't do what I think he's going to do. I'm, I'm hoping he toasts them, but... And Jonah waited for 40 days. And the book ends with God saying, you're concerned about your plant that, that I allowed. I prepared a vine. And then he prepared a worm. Then he prepared an east wind. He said, you're more concerned about that than, than the 120 people in Nineveh that can't even discern between their right and left hand. The compassion of the Lord. Now see... When Jesus said that to those Pharisees and Sadducees, they understood something much more than what we typically understand. 
They knew exactly what the sign of Jonah was. As a matter of fact, I don't think they understood the resurrection. But they understood very clearly what Jesus was declaring when he said the sign of the prophet Jonah. They knew exactly what God did when he spared Nineveh. He spared a Gentile city. He spared an enemy of Israel. And they understood that what Jesus was saying with the sign of Jonah was not just his resurrection after three days. It was his salvation. And, and it was a message that you, you guys have the heart of Jonah, the prophet. You've turned your heart from me. You're running from me. You have no love. You have no compassion. And just like I saved Nineveh in that day, I have come to save all men who will believe on me. Why were the Ninevites spared? Because they believed God. Why are we spared tonight, church? Because we believe God. Not because we deserve it, but because we believe God. Go to Acts chapter 1. So, show us a sign, Jesus. And his answer was, an adulterous and wicked generation seeks after a sign. And there's only one sign that it's going to get. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. In Acts chapter 1... In the introduction to this book written by Luke, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke is who wrote the book of Acts. And it says, let me just begin in verse 1. It says, the, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. People say today that they need proof. No, they don't. The proof, all the proof that people need has already been given. There is no sign, there's no miracle, there's no proof, there's nothing you're going to show people, demonstrate to people that's going to cause them to believe. Why? Because it's already been given. What has? The same sign that Jesus said the Pharisees and Sadducees were going to get is the same sign we got. We got the very same sign that they got. And, and Luke says here, By many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Paul goes on later on, he says he appeared to hundreds of people for 40 days, Jesus was on the earth doing what? Proclaiming the kingdom, teaching them the, 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 the things concerning the kingdom. There was no doubt he is the resurrected Lord. And they stood on that road to Jerusalem and they saw him ascend into heaven. And the angel said, the same way you see him leave this earth is the same way he's going to return to this earth. You are seeing him leave, beholding him as he goes. He will be beheld when he comes again in like manner. The sign's been given. The question is, are we more mindful of the things of man than we are the things of God? Are we like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a wicked and adulterous generation who keeps clamoring and demanding a sign and God says, what more can I do? I sent my son. He died on a cross. He laid in a tomb for three days. He is risen. He has ascended. He has received the kingdom that shall never end. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. He has commanded us to go. He has given us the message to proclaim. And you see that when we proclaim the message that God gives to us to proclaim, something happens. It's not dependent on you or I. It's not dependent on, on, on any of us. It's dependent upon God. God can take the simplest message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But because it was the word of God, what happened? They believed God. We wonder why men don't believe. Because we're trying to convince them. We're trying to reason out of our carnal mind. We're trying to convince them from our 
from our natural minds, through natural, logical reasoning, and there's nothing natural about God. There's nothing logical in that sense about God. He is beyond logic. He's beyond nature. He's supernatural. And we are to be mindful of Him and His things. God has given us the sign of His risen Son. And the question is, will we believe God? Will we be more mindful of God or more mindful of the things of man? Church, I want to encourage you. Be more mindful of the things of God. Don't be like Peter. This is something we have to fight. We have to fight the temptation. Because we still live in a carnal body. And we've been given emotions by God. Feelings. Feelings are from God. But we're never, even though God's given us feelings, He's never commanded us, He's never told us to live by our feelings. And if we're not careful, we're going to become like Peter. And we're going to let our feelings rule us. And we'll become more mindful of those things of men than we will the things of God. But if we will, if we can just be as obedient as a big fish or a donkey carrying a prophet, if we can just be is simply obedient to hear and proclaim the message that he has given us called the gospel. Men will believe God. They will believe God. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. What Jonah preached was the gospel. It didn't have Jesus in it anywhere by name. It didn't have chapter and verse anywhere in it. But it was the word of God. Jonah said it himself, salvation is of the Lord. And God sent him there to preach a message that would bring salvation, and it did. God has given us a message that will bring salvation if we will be faithful to preach it, to teach it, to live it and proclaim it through our lives. We will see the power of God. Amen. Come on up, worship team. Let's worship the Lord. We're going to take communion at the end.